Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Wednesday morning to you. Mike McNamara, in for Wednesday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's a letter written, signed by uh, over 100 general officers and flag officers of the, of the United States military. So this whole notion of civil-military separation um, once again in the news. Once again, not so much. Um, but I don't really want to distract from the program today. Um, and today what the program's about is if you listen to All Marine Radio, if you look what's uh, been the last couple days have been about, last couple days have been about taking a look at the hearing that happened a week ago into an Amtrak incident uh, that happened in July of 2020 off the coast of California. And uh, so the, the House Armed Service Committee, subcommittee on military readiness, chaired by California Representative John Garamendi, um, they had two parents, and if you want to hear their testimony, uh, just uh, go to the show on the website that's, uh, that I put up on Monday, and you'll hear their testimony. I think the whole segment runs about 53 minutes, so you'll hear their testimony, and I think you should listen to it. Um, and then on Tuesday, yesterday, uh, what the... Uh, I played the testimony in its entirety of uh, of a panel that included the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, 
General Gary Thomas, and the staff director of the Marine Corps, Major General Greg Olson, who sounds like he's the point man for the investigation uh, for the Marine Corps. So um, today, what I wanted to do is have the Mensa brothers on, and that's what you'll hear. And uh, and then we also invited Mike Marletto uh, to to join us. And uh, and you, if, for those of you who don't know Mike Marletto by uh, reputation, uh, uh, just an outstanding officer, uh, smart guy, uh, a great person uh, in terms of and and a Marine's Marine, I'll tell you, right? Um, tough, you know. All of that. So we invited him to join us, and he did. So you'll hear that uh, next. Um, And uh, what we talk about in the segment is, do we believe after, you know, and everybody, uh, what I asked everybody to do was, hey, I want you to listen to this testimony, and I want you to go back over the findings of fact of the investigation. Do you believe that the Marine Corps is on the right path um, in the aftermath of this incident and in a first investigation that's going to be followed by a second investigation. And, um, and so that's what we discuss. Um, before um, I, I hit play on that, uh, just a couple of things about the hearing that I, I thought should be mentioned. Timmy brings up one in the discussion, but I'll point two of them out. Um, The father of one of the Marines uh, that was, there were two parents that testified in the first panel. One is named Peter Vienna. He is the father of uh, H.N., which is Hospital Corman. That's what it stands for. Um, his name is Bobby Nem. The other gentleman that testified, his name is Peter Ostrowski. Now, Peter Vienna was talking, and he began to talk about one of the aspects of this investigation that's disturbing for him is that there was an Osprey crash in the summer of uh, 2017. I believe it was. It involved an Osprey uh, that was flying in support of the 31st Mew off the coast of Australia. And he talked about the conclusions that were reached in that investigation and how those conclusions were essentially derailed by Headquarters Marine Corps as this thing wound its way through. And Walt Yates uh, spoke with with, uh, both... Peter Vienna and Peter Ostrowski um, before their testimony. Representative Garamondi cuts him off. He's the only person that gets cut off in the hearing. And I don't know if that's a coincidence that you would cut a parent off like that or if you didn't want that, that testimony to be out there in any kind of long format, talking about that. I don't know. And again, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but I found it, and as I watched the whole 
uh, two and a half hours of the hearing, I thought it was odd. That's the only person that he clipped like that. The second thing that Representative Garamondi does, who's chairing the thing, is, uh, to his credit this time, is in his opening statement, Vice Admiral Kitchener says that the Navy, by the Marine Corps investigation, was not was found to not have, I want to say, contributed to the accident. And so he says that in his opening statement. Maybe two-thirds of the way through this, Representative Garamondi says, and make no mistake about this, the Navy did contribute to this. The Navy failed in this. And what's amazing that, in terms of what Vice Admiral Kitchener would say is, and you've heard this on this program, that the Navy is absolutely in charge of all ship-to-shore and shore-to-ship movement. So when you stand up and say, we didn't have any role in this, and you're charged with it, I'm not exactly sure how that works. And and honestly, to me, it's absolutely amazing how that um, commanding officer of the Somerset, how he wasn't fired. And the Navy hasn't seemed to be very interested in investigating it. And I will tell you, it's, you know, what happened, the lack of safety boats in the water, that's on the United States Navy. It's on the captain of that ship. It's on his combat information center, right? Having a having a AAV that's dead in the water, not being noticed for 20 minutes while they're w- waving their distress flag because you don't have an aft lookout because you're at flight ops. I mean, that's ridiculous. So I don't know where your aft lookout goes normally and then has to go during flight ops. But there's a million ways that you can observe the movements back to the ship and have a lookout that can observe the back of the ship and you can still do flight ops. Trust me, you could do that. You could figure it the fuck out. So I'm not going to do anything else this morning. I'm not going to play the national anthem, which I normally do. I'm not going to dedicate the show to anybody, right? Because, because this really segment gets to the crux of this event, and that is the deaths of eight Marines and one sailor. Where does that take the Marine Corps? Are we solving the right problem? And, and what inspired this is we'll constantly ask that question. What problem are we solving? Are we solving the right problem? And so um, on this Wednesday, um, you will hear from the Mensa Brothers plus one, Mike Marletto. Here you go. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Let's see. Um... The last two days, you've heard the testimony first from parents and then from uh, the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, um, General Thomas, General Gary Thomas, and also the Director of Staff, 
of the United States Marine Corps, uh, Major General Greg Olson, and uh, as promised, uh, the Mensa brothers, uh, plus uh, Mike Marletto, Colonel Type, United States Marine Corps, uh, join me here. So let's uh, we have to welcome everybody first from uh, outside the Kansas City, Missouri. Will Cosentini, Will, how are you? I am outside of Kansas City, Missouri, but I live in outside of Kansas City, Kansas. Right, as usual. Just checking to see if you were paying attention. Well done. Tim Lynch. Every day. From uh, just outside McAllen, Texas. Tim, how are you? Doing fine. I'm I'm coming to you from South Padre Island tonight. Whoa. Why? Hanging out at the beach today. Yes, indeed. Wow. And speaking of beaches, Mm -hmm. Jeff Kenny joins us from uh, San Clemente, not too far from the beach. Jeff, how are you? Very good. Thanks. All right. And uh, the star of the show today. Today, uh, Mike Marletto joins us from, uh, this is an international event, just so everybody knows. Uh, Mike, first of all, tell everybody uh, where uh, where you're living these days. I live in uh, north, uh, tropical Queensland, Townsville in uh, northern Queensland, about 1,400 kilometers north of Brisbane. Brisbane? That would be Brisbane to the rest of us? Yeah, Brisbane. Have you got? Have you got in, in Yankees? Have you, Yankees. Have you got Asia? Have you got Asiatic on us? Brisbane. No, I've gone Australian. Nice. <laughs> so, first of all, Mike, um, uh, you tell everybody about you. I mean, you've been on the program before, but uh, uh, give everybody a thumbnail of your career, and uh, then tell everybody what the hell you're doing down in Australia. Well, thanks, Mac. As you said, we've talked uh, before just in uh, general. I, you know, artillery officer, served uh, at every level in the artillery, was able to command at the battery battalion regimental level. Also did a lot of uh, operations uh, work. So in uh, planning uh, work, I was the spent three years at the MAGTAF staff uh, training program teaching uh, military planning, and then I also served as the uh, 1MEF G3 operations officer for two years, a year of that forward deployed in uh, Al-Ambar uh, about the same time you were over there. So I was the one of the assholes up at higher headquarters. Just for the record, you were never chief of the chief of staff of the 1st Marine Division, as I've said on more than one occasion here. That's correct. And I didn't make that up. Somebody told me that. The um, all right, uh, Mike. We'll start with you. Um, the subject of, of of this of this show today is um, you know we've been around the Marine Corps uh, for a long time, most of us. Um, uh, in the Mike, when did you Jeff joins in the in the in the mid seventies? Mike, when did you join the Marine Corps? In seventy uh, seven. Right, me in eighty three. Uh, Tim joins the Navy. When Tim, yeah, you would have to unmute yourself, bro. Yeah, no, it's complicated with this traveling setup. I enlisted in '79 in the uh, Navy, and then uh, young Mister Costantini. When did you join the Navy? Well, uh, I became a midshipman on July the seventh, nineteen eighty-one, and was commissioned on May twenty-second, nineteen eighty-five. All right, so there you have it. I joined the Marine Corps. I'm commissioned in December of 1983. 
So, I mean, we span a few decades here um, relative to experience. Um, and one of the things that I, just in, by way of a preamble, is that the AV comes into service in the Marine Corps in 1972. We've never had an incident like this in in the history of AV operations. Uh, and uh, so I think that's that's important. The AV has not been in Al-Ambar, I believe, since 2006. Uh, it was taken out of service in 2005 and corralled on FOBs, I think mostly at Al-Assad, but I'm sure other places, and then I'm sure consolidated and moved out of the country and brought back to the United States. The AV w- wasn't in Afghanistan. And uh, so um, in terms of the material condition, uh, everybody says, well, you know, we've been at war for the last 20 years. Well, not the AAV. So I just want to kind of point that stuff out as, as, as lay of the land stuff as we as we kind of begin this discussion. And so, Mike, let me open you the floor, uh, the floor to you. Um, you've heard the testimony. You've read the investigations. And uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen the, the different investigations, the F-18, KC-130, the other one of the AAV sinking off the East Coast. Um, and so when you put these things together, uh, certainly a bit disturbing. So if we bring the focus back to this investigation and these hearings that we just all watch, do you think the Marine Corps is on the right track relative to uh, getting where it needs to be um, to point itself in the direction of, I think we would all say, operational excellence? Well, the short answer to that is no. But uh, let me uh, talk about what struck me in, uh, as I listened to these t- testimony. And I was kind of disturbed in that the implication that I heard uh, was that there's not a culture of safety in the Marine Corps, and in particular on the ground side of the Marine Corps. From my experience, uh, you know, during my 31 years in, of active service, uh, there was very much a, a culture of safety, in particular in the artillery community. I mean, safety was driven home from uh, day one. And, uh, you know, there was a very precise procedures set out that uh, were expected to be followed um, and adhered to. And it they just made it sound like safety is, uh, you know, something that you only do in peacetime. Now, General Thomas, you know, did, did towards the end of his testimony say, no, it's something that we do, you know, all the time. And he's correct there. And I think it was Mr. Jaramundi said, you know, safety has to be paramount. And I disagree with that and say, no, safety has to be inherent in everything you do. And you start building those habits of safety and it carries over to, you know, real life operations and also to uh, combat. The same types of things that are important during your training evolutions also are going to be important in combat. And you don't, you know, not do safety when you uh, go into a combat situation. I'll give you an example. Um, got film of uh, 11th Marines units firing on, you know, conducting operations in OIF-1. And if you look at that, you'll see that the section chief, he's doing the right thing. He's doing all the safety checks required, double-checking the gunner, 
double checking that the charge is correct, double checking his A gunner that the correct elevation is uh, set on the howitzer. And he's doing that because it's been pounded in and it's inherent in just everything that he's been uh, taught to do. And he's been, it's been, he's been disciplined enough to uh, make that uh, part of day-to-day operations. And it's just become, you know, something that you do all the time. So um, that's the, that's the thing that struck me. And I'll let others uh, chime in because I'm sure we'll get to the other things that uh, we want to discuss, but that's what I'll start with. Okay. Um, Jeff, uh, the Nightingale, do you want to, Jeff, uh, why don't you roll out the A, do you think, well, let's just uh, real quick, um, do you think the Marine Corps is on the the right track um, based on what you saw in the hearing? And then we'll we'll come back around a second time and and lay out the the, the three things that that you think are, are most important here. Well, the first thing that jumped out at me <clears throat> during the hearings was uh, the, the continuing reference to the fact that we've been in the war since 2003, basically, in a big way in Iraq and then Afghanistan, and how that kind of dulled our amphibious edge. And another thing that surprised me about that hearing was how many of those Democratic representatives actually had Marine Corps experience besides Representative Moulton. There's a few of them. And... Uh, and most of them were pretty, pretty, you know, prescient in the things they were saying. But what what struck me about the they were lucky that no one brought up the fact that you brought up because I think some of those guys were probably there, or you know, I'd heard about the incident in two thousand and five in Haditha, where the AVs that were supporting three twenty five had a catastrophic kill that killed about as many Marines in that AV as got killed during the uh, accident on, in July of 2020. And so be, they would have really looked stupid if that came up. And also what it, it betrays, because they all knew that. They knew the AVs hadn't been in combat ops since then. You know, I know that, uh, you know, that Olsen and, uh, and, and the assistant commandant knew that. But they tried to pass one. I mean, they were basically, I think, trying to um, just shui shui, as we say in Iraq, this thing past Congress in order to make it, Okay, we're going to take our licks, we're going to take our medicine, and then we're going to move on. We're going to promise to do, do away with the career careers of, I think he said, 11 Marines, and you know, then we're going to just get over this. We're going to take whatever abuse you guys heap on us. But they were, they were disingenuous about that because on schedule, those MUSE have been going out with about 15 AAVs doing the same type of stuff. And before they hook in, and we've talked about this before, before they hook in, to that mu, all those MSC commanders, division, MLG, and wing, have to go through the JLTI, the Joint LTI, where that all the truth comes out then about what these vehicles have. And something happened there. They had crappy vehicles. I mean, three of them I think were stuck on the beach uh, when they when they went to to uh, get back on the ship. And we both know there's other anomalies with that. That we that you know that came out during the investigation that Colonel Fridrickson did, but uh, you know the, the fact that uh, that uh, these AVs are in such poor condition and not ready, either the meth commander acquiesced to having substandard stuff come in, or they bullshitted him about it, or you know what I'm saying the the people in the uh, 
the people in the four shop of the uh, of the division in this case, the people in the AAV battalion. Um, basically, either they lied or they they were allowed to get away with sending these crappy vehicles, you know, that were so many of them were deadlined to these guys who were going to a PTP, which is very compact and very robust because they got to get out the door by, on schedule. You know, it's, it's the way it goes. And that's one thing that hasn't changed since, uh, since before OIF one to this day is right now there's uh, the 13th Mew is out there floating around doing the same type of stuff. They're on their second at sea period, or excuse me, their third, you know, their Surdex at sea period and they're doing stuff. So it's, uh, it goes on. And it's not like, you know, we stopped going to sea because we were killing Iraqis and Afghans. Right. Tim, how about you? Um, yeah. Your, your thoughts on, on what you saw in the hearing? I'm not, not very, uh, not, not, not an impressive hearing. Uh, w- once again, uh, it's hard for me not to notice that the, most of the congressmen that were talking had very little information of, of, or idea what they were talking about. Uh, it's pretty clear to me that nobody on Capitol Hill listens to All Marine Radio. We've given them all the answers they needed to know in three weeks ago. And, and, and I'm, I say that as, 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 a, as sort of like a joke, but the fact of the matter is, is everything you need to know and everything that Navy investigation is going to come out and show, hopefully, we've already told you. Not we, Will and, Will and Jeff. And so... I, I'm not very. I, there was nothing I saw in that in, in that in, in that hearing which gave me cause for hope. I did nothing at all. I, I I just feel like we're flailing away at 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 at, at the wrong problem because the problem isn't with junior Marines and the problem isn't needing to have a safety officer or a safety culture. I've been a safety officer. I was a good one. That's no place that's that has. No, no place for a safety officer in the Marine Corps, as far as I'm concerned, because it's the goddamn company commanders or battalion commander or et cetera. It's their job. They're the safety officers. That's how I feel about that. But no, I was very discouraged listening to that to that presentation. Very discouraged. All right, Will, your thoughts? Uh, is the Marine Corps on the right track to fix this? Um, based on the emphasis that was in the hearing, I would say no. Uh, the emphasis was safety culture uh, with a minor in material readiness. Uh, there were some things in the hearing, uh, you know, we're closing the barn door, the horses are gone, about conducting more uh, inspections of the equipment, enhanced inspections, et cetera. But the emphasis was about safety culture. And I, I would say um, – the the worst, the worst part of the hearing is, I believe, Jackie Spire said that this was reckless, and neither the assistant commandant or uh, General Olson pushed back on that. Well, there was nothing reckless about the operation that they were doing out there, um, doing a ship-to-shore movement for a mech raid in daylight. Uh, that's been going on since the early 80s, maybe the mid-80s uh, at the latest. So we've been doing that for 40-plus years, or close to 40 years. Uh, so that's not reckless. Um, but then all the discussion about 
you know, as Mike pointed out, uh, we, we need to have people willing to step up and about this safety culture thing. Um, again, that was, that was just part of the SOP. Um, you know, some of this discussion about uh, safety in, is inherent. You know, in combat, your risk calculus might be a little bit different than in peacetime. But in combat, you're calculating and you might get closer to a safety line based on the risk and the mission. As opposed to peacetime, you might have a greater margin uh, of above your safety requirement. But the requirement is a red line that you're just not going to cross in either case. And so if we go down this rabbit hole of safety and safety culture, um, that's not the problem. You know, we know what the problem is. The problem is a fundamental leadership failure to properly execute to standard and to hold people accountable. Uh, Had that happened, uh, first, uh, you know, this equipment wouldn't have been where it was, and then that crew would have been trained to do what they would have done, and then there would have been cohesion, and then the Navy would have been involved, and the safety boats would have been in the water, and they wouldn't have launched, et cetera. Those are all leadership things. That has nothing to do with safety culture. There is nothing in that investigation that says somebody stood up and said, this is unsafe, and they were ignored. There is nowhere in that investigation. And so this idea that people are afraid to stand up and say something's unsafe I mean, that may be true. I don't know. But it, it, there's nothing in that investigation. There's no evidence that would take you down that path. I would just add to that that, yeah, I think it's pointed the whole safety thing. Um, the basis for our relationship, um, excepting Mike, is, is our time together at the basic school and at the infantry officer course. We did more live fire training than any group of officers I ever met in my life. We did it all the time. Live fire, non-illuminated not live fire night attacks, illuminated nine, you know, live fire night attacks, balloon hunts in the woods, right? And, you know, we were about trying to produce the best infantry officers for the United States Marine Corps. And inherent in our responsibility to create excellence was safety, because you can't create excellence without rigorous training. And in order to train rigorously, it's got to be safe. Because dead is dead. I don't care if you're in combat and you're, you can kill yourself just as quickly as you can kill the bad guys. right? And so safe is safe. And, and as Will just said, there might be conditions in combat that you would call in danger close and, 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 and push those lines. But you still know. Right, the dead is dead. You, your own lead will kill you just as quick as the enemies will will kill you. And so, to me, right, operational excellence, right, is a function of rigorous training, and inherent in that is safety. Safety and rigor, rigorous training, go hand in hand. There is no separation. So, I, I just want to echo the comments that are made by just about everybody about. Um, this idea that we're not concerned about safety, you know, I reject that. I, I reject that. I grew up, uh, and I didn't, look, I didn't learn that from nowhere. I got taught that by the officers that I worked for. I mean, and they were having none of it. They didn't give a shit about your feelings. You know, McNamara, when I want you to think, 
My pants will be around my ankles, and I'll be waving my hands over my head. That's when you think. Until then, you do what I tell you to do. You be good at what you're supposed to be do that you're supposed to be doing. You you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? And you're an executor. You got that? Yes, sir. Right? And you know how to how to do well in the Marine Corps. Find out what your CO wants and give it to him. That's as much as you got taught. You know when we were young, and we did that shit, and we took it seriously. And so to me, I safety you bet your ass we weren't afraid to stand up and say hey this is not safe so again i those comments really concern me and i think the the conversation has to be about operational excellence how you get there and then what your moral responsibility is not only to your marines and you take an oath to that shit to their families and everybody that loves them that you're gonna you're gonna do the right thing and so to me the, the fact that we're not talking about operational excellence and you go and, and the, both the the subject of the McCain and the Fitzgerald came up. For every problem those ships had, there was a leadership response to that. Our, our one of our surface radars is degraded. Double the exterior watch. We've been sailing around the world for about uh, two thousand years now. We can do this shit. But when you don't do that stuff and you don't have your head in the game and you and you're you're not into it, then you get what you get. Um, Mike, uh, back to you. Um, go, why don't you go down your list of uh, three things that, as you look at this investigation, people ought to be interested in? Well, first of all, I want to comment on, on uh, this idea that kind of permeated that uh, hearing that the Navy's problem is recent with the McCain and the uh, Fitzgerald. If you Google list of U.S. Navy collisions, uh, you'll find these things just go all the way back into the, you know, 70s and, the, you know, the 60s. This is nothing new. You know, the USS uh, Frank Evans was sliced in half by uh, an Australian aircraft carrier in uh, 19, I believe it was 68. Uh, the USS uh, Belknap was almost destroyed by the USS uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, Seventh Fleet's got a whole history of recent, you know, problems. So, you know, again, this is uh, nothing new. We've talked about, you've talked many times about, you know, discipline and, you know, the fact that, hey, everything was in place to ensure that, you know, this didn't happen if people had just, you know, basically been disciplined enough to uh, do the right thing. Uh, One thing I'll... I'll add on, on my list because, again, uh, you know, we've already you've already talked about discipline a lot. You've talked about accountability. Um, one thing that I think is lacking, and I, I'll call it professionalism, it's the fact that commanders are have a responsibility to create the environment and set the conditions for the success of their units, their subordinate units, and also everyone that's uh, in that unit. And you know, to do that, one of the things that as professionals people have to do is strive to make sure that they understand why they're doing things. You know, obviously that was missing in uh, all through this investigation. For example, you know, the crew of that AAV, they, you know, put their dipstick in and that transmission came up dry and they, you know, knew that they had to add, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, transmission fluid 
add six gallons to, a, I think it was a 23, 24 gallon um, capacity of the transmission. But no one under took the time to say, well, what's what's really going on here? Why is this? Why do we have to add this much uh, fluid? Did they have, you know, did they understand that? Well, potentially, it's because we've got this drain plug uh, that's uh, open, and we're just pouring this stuff in, and it's coming right out uh, the bottom. So throughout not only this event, but I would say throughout all of these events that we've seen, is a true lack of professionalism and a true lack of understanding of the systems that uh, people are operating. If you look at the McCain uh, investigation, that crew and that skipper of that ship did not know how that automated navigation system uh, worked. And when he engaged it and, and said, let, and had his crew do a, an advanced uh, operation uh, with uh, splitting the helm from the power, uh, they really didn't know what they were doing. And he didn't know the implications of what the order was that uh, he was giving. So I would say that it's, uh, you know, it should be a concern because, you know, we talk about fighting a, a near peer or peer adversary. Uh, we've got to get a hell of a lot better and a hell of a lot more professional if we're going to be successful in that environment. All right. Jeff, go ahead. Um, you want to go down your list of, uh, of, of things? Well, I mean, I think we're all going to coalesce here because, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious. But <clears throat> I would say just like the, the immigration laws in America, the laws are, I mean, the SOPs are there. I mean, between Will and I, we did five floats with MET companies um, between 1988 and 1996. And, uh, you know, it was like written in stone, all the stuff that has to happen before you get to go back on ship after you've been ashore and vice versa. And everybody, you know, there's SOPs exist there, what the Navy does, the safety boats, the communications that have to happen, who's doing what, all that stuff is already there. So, you know, I would say that, uh, uh, that was kind of ignored, and I don't know why. I mean, I was here, and I'm in the organization that trains the Muse. I mean, the uh, the advisor training branch is a subsidiary of the Expeditionary Ops Training Group. So I and I help a lot doing the the Muse stuff. And I have to tell you, Fifteenth Mew was affected profoundly by the distractions of COVID. You know, where where stuff that normally would happen um, in a certain order. With a with Muse in their pre uh, lock on and then their post uh, lock on PTP just didn't happen for them, and the, and the uh, the stipulations of the quarantines that were necessary kept shifting. I mean, to the point where it was ridiculous. Where you had uh, for every week a guy would be on ship, there'd be almost two weeks of uh, of uh, quarantine. You can see the chaos that that would uh, that that would you know and you know it, it, that would inflict on a unit so they allowed that to happen they allowed now the, the co of the 15th mew is a masterful commander he did his best and i think he did well at trying to mitigate that but uh you know it was just uh, the odds were against them to be a proficient combined arms force in, in the traditional way that mews are 
I mean, their second and third at sea periods were jammed together with a quarantine on the front end and a quarantine in the back end. Well, the quarantine in the back end was when they finished, they just floated. They didn't go on leave or anything like that. So it was, it was a, a really different type of situation. And uh, the whole uh, meth that was involved with the muse was subject to that. I think the the uh, the maw also had chaos in regards to the you know the uh, the ace that they provided to the fifteenth mu also, so you know that was a factor. So that distraction right there, the uh, but I, I'll tell you what, how the uh, the the uh, the uh, mechan you know the mechanized uh, um, assets that were given from the uh, from the division and from the MLG to the fucking meth how they could be in such poor condition that though is beyond me that's beyond me what were these things doing that that caused such a degradation you know, 54 percent of avs you know basically not capable not mission capable how does that happen what 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 other what's the missing component you know that's my my question with this thing um uh, really that's the the crux of the whole thing the, the they weren't really paying attention. It was like there were so many distractions. And then, um, I, and again, that to me is a mystery. I have not seen it. That somebody Did somebody say, hey, meth commander, I'm the division commander. I'm handing you this bag of shit because it's the best I can do. Well, I understand your challenges, so I'm going to accept it, and we'll just let the mute commander deal with it. Is that what happened? Or did... The, the commanding generals get bullshitted by the subordinate uh, staffs. I mean, I just don't know. All right, Timmy. Yeah, the the um, from listening to that, that the, the one thing that jumped out at me right away was when that Navy admiral uh, was uh, about midway through that that hearing. He said that 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 the Navy. I'm going to quote him. We agreed with the fundamental conclusion that there were no causal factors attributed to the Navy. And all of this nonsense. We've sat there and pulled this thing apart. I wouldn't have known that. We'll we'll ingest it because I was one of those guys that was always on the helicopter carrier. So that's not true. And what will what what uh, (laughs) what Jeff, I just I just looked at him and almost said Lori because that's what it says underneath you, Jeff. What what Jeff was saying about the, the 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 COVID distraction, I, I think there's other distractions. I remember back in, in, the, in the 90s, uh, uh, as we were getting ready to go out of deployment, I, I, I forgot what the occasion was, but I wrote down the number of, of days of mandatory things we had to do. We're talking the sexual harassment training, the suicide prevention training, all that stuff. All these mandatory things, and it was like the amount of time you had to train was, was in a number we could count on two hands uh, in a 12-month period. And, and, and so I think that the problem that Jeff was alluding to with why we got these broken tracks and whatnot has something and why we couldn't adjust for COVID better, which I think was a politicized reaction to a virus that turned out not to be that bad anyway. Um, I think all of this is where the problem is. And, and instead of hearing this discussed, we get A from the Admiral, we get a guy flat out friggin' saying that we're not taking any responsibility. And he's going to have to eat those words once he looks into it, once he understands what, what, what he was supposed to know. And, and, and the, second, the second thing is, is that we're not seeing any type of 
of, 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 a, of a focus above the MU commander level. Everything's down at the junior level. Everything's down to this culture of safety. And, and I'll tell you, as a professional safety officer, uh, a culture of safety is, 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 is not a pleasant place to be. You cannot, as, as a trucking company safety officer, supposedly every time somebody was on the back of a float, that's on the back of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a rig, he should have a fall suspension harness on because he's above five feet. And OSHA says, above five feet, you've got to have fall suspension. Every roofer you see who's not hooked up to a fall suspension line is in violation of OSHA regulations. And OSHA regulations are so onerous that you cannot conduct business and comply with all of them. And I don't want to see that uh, us start focusing in that kind of a nitnoid process down at the individual brain level, because I don't think this was necessarily at the junior leadership, the, the junior level. I think we've got problems with distractions from on high, and I think that that's being felt within the fleet. Because when, when we were lieutenants doing this, everybody understood what the hell was important. Get the goddamn mule out was important. I get it that that's not as important now. But I, some of the stuff that we've discussed, I, I don't understand how it, it could even happen. How, how, how do you just get with a bunch of tracks and go floating on the San Clemente Island and you haven't even worked with them? And I, I mean, I don't understand that. So I, I, that's my observations. Got it. Well, yeah, I'll give you three. Number one, uh, leadership failure by senior officers to supervise compliance with order standards and standard operating procedures. Um, that material readiness, training, uh, senior officers to include Navy officers um, with their own uh, NAV, surf pack, surf lamp requirements to launch and recover AVs. Uh, number two thing in the investigation is a complete lack of Navy involvement, and we beat that up pretty good. And I would say the third thing uh, about the investigation is a complete ineptitude of the overall response by Headquarters Marine Corps. Um, you know, think about it. Uh, these guys died in October, as you were, in July. Um, they don't, they, they relieve the MU commander just prior to releasing the investigation. They release the investigation. They get an uproar from families, and I think they got some ticklers from Congress. Uh, so they have to do another investigation. General Mundy's name is announced for that. Then they got to come in for a hearing. Uh, they determine that they need to suspend uh, General Castelvi, former division commander, now the IG of the Marine Corps. Uh, you got families saying that they felt like they were abandoned. Uh, and then even down to this hearing, you know, they get accused by Congress people. Uh, some of the quotes, this was reckless. Uh, the AAV is a death trap. Uh, someone said that. No pushback. Um, there was, uh, Moulton said, well, the Marine Corps, there's a culture of when something happens, we just relieve everyone. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Moulton or someone else said the Marine Corps has a culture of cruelty. To me, that's inept. When you let people make those statements that are going to be part of the record forever in a congressional record, you don't put that. So those are my three. Um, let me give you. I, I only have two. Um, one. So what you're saying is that you are below the standard. I am. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that you know we're going to walk the walk here. Well, I, 
<laughs> yeah. No, I, if, uh, my third, I have a third, but it, I'm not, I don't feel strongly about it. Uh, number one, I, I would so tell you. you make excuses about how you don't meet the standard. Exactly. I just number want to make sure. One, that, I know. would tell you, uh, the, again, goes back to something that started uh, in the Marine Corps, what, three years ago when General Furness talked about we're not disciplined enough. And there was a fucking uproar through the Marine Corps saying, how dare he say that, right? He's drugged through the street. Well, let me tell you, I, in my opinion, the number one thing that, that the Marine Corps ought to be concerned with is operational discipline. Um, what we're talking about in this investigation, when I see it, is blocking and tackling events at the company level, the platoon level that went undone, that went unsupervised, that killed eight Marines and one sailor. Right, and in in order to be operationally excellent, right, we know as I said, you know, it's you got to train hard, right, and you got to train safely. They go hand in hand. One does not exist without the other. The foundation of that is right is is understanding orders, SOPs, and then doing those things, and to include when you maintain somebody changes the part. Somebody goes over and supervises and makes sure it's done. All this thing gets launched, right, because the transmission failed due to leaking oil from a loose drain line plug. That's what sets all of this in motion inside the vehicle. Now, that's supposed to be preventable. But but to me, what you see, all these different things that, 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 that happened that day are blocking and tackling at the company level, my job as the company commander, if I'm uh, if I'm the track company commander or, or the, the 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 infantry company assigned to tracks, is to what? I got to make sure my guys know how to number one, get in and out of those son of a bitches, get and get out when when they're uh, under duress, and we could do that on dry land. If that's all I have, we could do it in dry land. We could do it in the well track, but we got to do it. And if we don't do that, then I've got to put my hand up and say, hey, look. I hate to be that guy, but I'm that guy, right? And then, and and then, you know, the safety move, you know, the ship to shore movement. AV's got to be empty, and there's got to be one for every five, you know. Completely blow that off, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. Hey, we request permission to wave the second vehicle in lieu of that we have one. It is empty. It is. There was none of that. Just didn't do it. Then now, now we're now we're ashore, and we're going to turn around and come back. And you got a company commander, you got a platoon commander, and a platoon sergeant. None of them accompany the majority of the platoon as they head out to sea. There is no confirmation that, knowing that we provided the safety boats on the way in, there is no confirmation that we're going to do it. This is just basic, basic shit. And then you go through the events that happen. As the vehicle flounders for, what, 40 minutes, waving a flag for 20, and you see all the different things that happen, right, where guys should have had their, 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 their sappies off, they should have shed that shit, right, they should have been ready to, to get out, and none of it, ha- that is all blocking and tackling shit. And so that's operational discipline. What am I supposed to do? When am I supposed to do it? Doing it every time that way. And so to me, that's the, that's the issue here. In my hey, can I jump in for a second? Back. No, yeah. I'm not done. Neither one of you two. So just go ahead and mute yourself. No, this is, I'm going to riff good. On your read board, 
are things that General Van Riper, when he took over the division, published to the division, and it's about discipline. So he did that in, I want to say, 92. Well, on, on the All Marine Radio website, there's a thing that says Read, Read Board. Board. If you click on that, you'll see what Will's talking about. And so in 1992, and I got to tell you, the Marine Corps was actually pretty good in 1992. But General Van Riper felt it was important to talk about discipline, how far we came in 25 years that talking about discipline by a division commander was verboten. That's interesting. Hey, Mac. Um, One of the things that disappointed me when the uh, parents were uh, on and being uh, testifying was uh, one of them tried to bring up and talked to Colonel Yates and tried to bring it up and unfortunately got cut off. And then when I heard the discussion of egress training brought up with General Olson, um, I he gave a what I thought was kind of a beer math answer uh, based on, you know, and not in line with what I've heard you talk several times and certainly not in line with uh, what was discussed when you had Colonel Yates on, I believe it was last week. Uh, he simply said they, they asked him about egress, the availability of egress training. He said, hey, our throughput is 240 uh, people uh a week. Uh, a week. And, uh, you know, you multiply that by 50, we can do 10,000 people a year. So that's not a problem. Um, I know you've had discussions where you talked about, okay, you know, the, you know, the thing shut down a couple times uh, a year for maintenance. You know, it's got contractors running it. Uh, so I thought that was a, a kind of a flip answer. And uh, can you comment on, uh, go back over some of the stuff that you learned about the availability of egress training? Well, I, I would defer to Jeff, but let me just say this about uh, Congressman Garamendi cut one person off in the whole hearing. And he caught, he caught, um, he got, he caught the corpsman's father, right? Um, Bobby Nem was the corpsman's name. He cut his father off when he started to go down the rabbit hole of what, Colonel Yates talked about is that these recommendations come out of these investigations, go to headquarters, Marine Corps, go to training education command. And then we don't want to spend the money because you'll see this finding of fact comes out of the Mew investigation and other investigations about underwater egress training. And, and so they come. And so we either massage the requirement because we don't want to spend the money. We don't want to build the facilities. We don't want to man the thing. And he cut that off. He didn't cut anybody else off in the entire fucking hearing. I just thought that was very interesting because um, I noted that. Well, now he's going to talk about you know what what Walt Yates said, and then boom, he gets cut off. Now again, I don't, I'm, I'm not circle, I'm not chartering the black helicopter, um, but I thought that was certainly interesting timing. And I'll defer to Jeff relative to um, all the issues, you know that that, and they're no secret to go with. You know, helo dunker training, the limited capacity. So, Jeff, let me, I'll defer to you. Yeah. Well, if you're a mech company commander or a mech platoon commander, you want to make sure your main concern is that formidable against the enemy. And so, assume, your, your men need to have situational awareness above all. And the AV crewmen 
are it's drilled into them that they run that AAV. And they decide when those hatches come open, when they get closed, and all that stuff. You got to break them in half of that shit. And we did that in nineteen in uh, nineteen eighty eight. We started training up to do the float uh, with Lima Company three eight. So hell no. As soon as we splash and we're back on the surface, those fucking hatches become they come open, and the grunts open them themselves. And we train to open them themselves. And if something was to go wrong with the AV. The implication is you're out and you're in the water and you got your, your, your buoyancy compensator inflated. But I have to tell you, because that is so goddamn rare in the history of the P7 that it sinks, that wasn't the main concern. The main concern was being your men knowing where the fuck they were when you, when you approach the enemy, particularly when you're coming up on the beach. And so that was, a, that was something they were experts in. And every AAV, it's its own little component. The same guys are in the same AAV almost every fucking time. Machine Gunner, he's tucked up against the the. Hey, hey hold on, Jeff. Jeff, back. hold on. Uh, the question I thought Mike asked was the throughput, right. the the throughput in the the Hilo dunker in in the AAV dunker training. We never, we never used it. We we didn't have an AAV dunker when uh, in the in the late eighties and in the mid nineties when I went through. God. Yeah, could I? I, I just didn't do it. Just talk about Dunker. I'll just tell you my experience as a battalion three with Hilo Dunkers. So one of the requirements is that the helicopter company go through the Dunker training. Nice. As a battalion three, I gave my Hilo company one opportunity to do it. Because I had seen, as a company commander in a mech company, my brother in a Hilo company, struggle for months to get through Hilo Dunker training because the requirements are so stringent. If a Marine has a sniffles, he can't go through. If his swim call isn't stamped by the commandant, he can't go through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that Hilo company, for they, they missed significant training because they were trying to do Hilo Dunker training. So when I went through, I did the risk calculus. I said, you know what? The helicopter's not supposed to go in the water. The mission profile has got nothing to do with riding in that thing. And I'm going to assume risk. You got one chance to go through it, and whoever goes through great, and whoever doesn't go through great, they're getting on a helicopter too. Right. The 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 last significant helicopter accident where we had Marines go in the water, Adisa. I believe, was with First Recon. Hit the back of the ship and went in the water. The best swimmers in the Marine Corps are in the recon battalions, and a bunch of those guys drowned. And that just, it just proved to me, helicopter goes in the water and you get out and survive. God has got a lot to do with that. To become proficient in escaping a helicopter, think about what the task, condition, and standard is. The condition has got to be fully loaded helicopter with combat loaded Marines at night. You can't train to that standard. And so saying, well, we can put 10,000 people through and through the AAV dunker. First, it's crap. And second, you're not going to simulate the true combat condition. Because if you did, you'd be taking 5% casualties in peacetime yeah. just to do it. So I think, Hilo, I think the dunker training, that's the cherry on top. If you can do everything else to be combat ready, then you do dunker training as well. Uh, but I mean, wait, we're going to focus wait, on that. 
I mean, the Hilo, Etha, same. Th- I mean, way more Helos go down th- than the AVs. You know, it's ridiculous. And think about it. Training is a zero-sum game. If you want to put something in, you got to take something out. You can't just say everyone's got to go to dunker training. you got to tell them what other critical thing that they're going to take out of their training. Because there's nothing in there that's bad. But, yeah, those but guys, a leader, uh, they didn't know how to operate those Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, a Although, leader those... needs to identify and say, dunker training is important. This training is now not important. And no one's going to do that. They're just going to keep throwing more shit into the bag. And so as a leader, you make a decision. I made a decision as a, as a battalion three. And if we would have had a helicopter go down and people would have drowned, they would have come back and I would have stood up and said, and someone would have said, well, fuck you, you're fired or whatever. But Getting this as well, if they only would have had dunker training, they would have survived. And, uh, and the dunker, the dunker's easy. The dunker training is—it's not even that challenging. It's there's a there's a gigantic amount of space to maneuver in. Even when they put you with the with the blacked out goggles, it's 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 a, an entire day for a half hour experience of going out of a something that doesn't look like a helicopter at all. To me, it's it was a waste of my time. Most people get killed with AVs. It's because they're crushed. They either get run over by an AV or they're crushed up against a building or a tree or something like that. Way, way more than uh, – I mean, it doesn't sink. And that's the other infuriating thing about the testimony. I mean, Moulton, he's saying, oh, we knew the AVs sink. He's full of shit. Name me another time this happened. I mean, there's a few times AVs have gone down, never with this loss of life. And the reason is because, you know, the people are sal- you know, savvy enough to get the hell out of the thing. And, but I have to tell you, they just don't sink. It's just that rare. All right. Let me just say this about the, the, the AV training. If that's the standard and that's what we You're write. You're mute, Mac. You're mute, Mac. You're timbed, as we would say. I know. It was good, too. Uh, let me just say this about the, the AV dunker training. If that's what we say the standard is, okay, then then I got it. And then what somebody has to do is say, look, we can't do this. Look at this memorandum for the record that Major Cosentini wrote, okay, saying that he he deemed this of less value than this, 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 and this and could not commit to it. And we've got six of these letters here from the last four years. Okay, somebody's got to remedy either the requirement or give us the facilities to do this. And I think that's that's what you hear throughout is that, yeah, you've levied this require on a requirement on us, but we can't get the throughput to get all the different people through the different training that we're supposed to do. And I think that's just that's just the way the Marine Corps is. Let me make let me make my final point. Number two is the maintenance condition of the AAV. And I'll I'll, pick, I'll dovetail off something Jeff said. Why are we finding out after the incident that fleet-wide, right, we have, you know, plenum leaks, emergency egress lighting system problems in 20% of the vehicles, bilge pump discrepancies. Why, why are we finding that stuff out? A continuing action is maintenance, right? Units have maintenance management officers. Their job is this shit, right? What? And, and again, we all know that, that these AVs, they've been road hard, right? 
and we know what fails in them, and now that they're not being produced anymore, some parts have to be manufactured. If you can't pull them off another vehicle, then you've got that thing's deadline until you can get a new part manufactured for it. Okay, so we we but we know that. Why I don't understand how the maintenance infrastructure of the United States Marine Corps is not on top of this shit. I mean, we know, and and so my question is: Well, is, is that was that a is that an issue around the Marine Corps, or is it an issue in one battalion that is clearly struggling, right, w- relative to? Their performance, and you see it relative to training, decision making, and 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 vehicle selection for the MU. Is it confined to one battalion, and now we're taking a look at everybody, or is it Marine? Why I don't understand, right? I don't understand how how this can be an epiphany for a vehicle that's been in our inventory for fifty years. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then again. The whole chain of events in the vehicle gets set off by an improperly installed plug in a hose. I don't get that. I, and so to me, is that is that the fact that we didn't know or we just have people in the system that aren't doing their job? Tim's my maintenance management officer, and he's not going out checking however number of um, what do you call the maintenance tickets? Mike, you'll know this, right? What do you call those things? Remember? I didn't know. Well, they have PM sheets that uh, you do when you do your... Yeah, but when you open up a uh, troubled ticket, what's that thing called? An arrow. Arrow. An arrow. Right. Somebody's got it. Somebody's responsible for, 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 for checking arrows, right? And in a good organization that knows how to do maintenance, this shit isn't a surprise. So I don't, to me... I don't understand that. I do not understand how how this can come as a surprise for a vehicle that's been in for as long as it has been. Um, you know, right. no, Matt, try, try to look at what, what kind of things the AAVs do. You know, at 29 Palms, a lot of AAV work happens because of the ITX and so forth. And they have the EF out there. Where they have the, the uh, vehicles set aside so that Lejeune guys don't have to haul their uh, AAVs out. And I have to tell you, I don't. I lost track of if the California guys from Pendleton are are training their stuff out there. You know, if they're putting on trains, and I don't think they are. I think they're using the EF too. So it seems like what you would do is you put all your non seaworthy AVs at Twenty Nine Palms in the EF, you know, for ITX, and all the good ones that can do the original mission would be either at Lejeune or at Pendleton. I just, you know, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I haven't really looked into it. I can though. And I was going to, because now I'm curious about that. You know, how the, who decides, you know, which ones, when does something go to the EF? How, how much, how many of the, does first Marine division guys. And when the guys come from Hawaii, they're using the EF for sure. Of course, obviously. So, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's the, what's the dry, what's the drain on these, uh, AVs on the coast. And I don't know if there's a problem uh, over in Tumef. There wasn't when I was, uh, you know, we didn't have this issue come up. When I was EOTG for TUMEF between 2014 and 2017. But, yeah, but so it, I'm wondering, what's the strain, you know? It, it came up you in mean, 2019 because they, they had a track sink for, for very, very, sim- yeah, sim- yeah, yeah. Similar, very, very similar reasons with very, very similar recommendations. 
I want to make one so more, and then I want to make one more comment about COVID. Um. So who's supposed to remedy when co co COVID impacts the teep? Who's supposed to remedy Bruce that? Star. Yeah, so somebody who's wearing it. stars. I, I guarantee you that. That's so three star, without a doubt. So a culture of assuming risk, right? When a three star doesn't provide you a remedy, and all, and they don't unload your task list, right? And they never say no to a tasker, right? Where does the culture of safety start? Uh, to me, it's by the people wearing stars, but they never say no, right? And all they do is stretch the rubber band tighter, right? Stretch the rubber band tighter. That's the point. And, and so to me, point. to me, if COVID impacted it, that is absolutely a general officer event. And, and, and maybe General Thomas should have a discussion with the general officers, first and foremost, about mitigating some of the requirements that they take on because, you know, I didn't really realize how hard the MEF got run, the entire MEF, until I went to be the OPSO at MEF headquarters group. And and you see these, whether it be mobile training teams, all the different taskers that come down. And, and, and like the MEF's not busy enough, and then these things come out of nowhere. Hey, we've got to send 80 guys to Georgia. We've got to send, you know, 20 guys to Tonga. and And we do it. Right, and they're tasking 11th Marines. We need seven guys from you. We need a you know diesel mechanic and four guys from the ninth com. <laughs> they go everywhere. They have the tightest rubber band you've ever seen in your life. And, and it's like you're watching. Like, is somebody ever going to say no to this shit? Answer: No, never. And so I would say though, Mac, in the 80s, uh, the average lieutenant in infantry battalion was deployed 50 percent of the time he was there. Op tempo is not new. Right. I mean, I had 540 deployed days in 35 months. Yeah, you're right, Will. But what is new is these MEF, these uh, these combined uh, MSE little teams they put together to do different things. Like, remember, they would like that's what Mac is talking about. So all these MTTs you get put together, I would you got love guys. To, though, there should be there's data on purse tempo that can be pulled from the 80s compared to today. Um, I, you know, fit, yeah, fit, but, fit, but fit, let me tell you, you yeah. were in eighth Marines in the eighties. Yes. Yeah. I was in one five and we were what we were three to one, right? We, we deployed, we, were, we deployed, we came home. We had plenty of time to, to train, to restock the battalion. We became duty battalion for six months. We had a year to train before the next de- deployment. I mean, it's true. You're right. You're right, Mac. It's true that it's not as bad now. The one that was at its worst was between 2005 and 2009. Because I know just advisor teams alone, we had 98 advisor teams, yeah, thousands of guys, and they were yanked from all different places, you know, in both MEFs, you know, and sent over there. So it's way it was different. And at the same time, the infantry battalions are going out and they're going into Iraq, going in Afghanistan, not a lot, not having their XO, not having their OPSO because he's a team leader somewhere. I mean, you can poo-poo that, you know, but it's, it was I'm not a significant. It, but that was 14 years ago. No, no, it wasn't. That's no stopped worse. in 2013. Well, today, you're right. I mean, we're, we're admitting. today is no worse than it was in 1989. No, you're right about that. All right. Um, 
We've been going at this for about an hour. Um, Matter of fact, way less now, I would say, because where I sit, there's way less teams going out. Well, but again, but my, my point in the COVID comment, and the remedy's got to come from, from the three-star level, is this. When you see that comment and, and you looked at and, – and, 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 and if you follow 1-4, right, what interrupted their pre-deployment training? Right, a deployment down to the border to support that that requirement. Okay, that that just plops in their lap out of nowhere. Maybe not out of nowhere. I don't know if they were coming, but that's that's time out of their teep that they're sitting down on the border, you know, staring at whatever the fuck they're staring at. All right, and so to me, who provide and then COVID, who provides the remedy for that? All right, to me, it's well, some it's somebody Mac works. Is that track platoon? got sent over to uh, the Middle East to participate in an exercise also that interrupted the, the training cycle. Right. But I think to answer your question is, you know, that ultimately when you're talking about, you know, a mew either being able or not being able to deploy on schedule, that's got to be a three-star, you know, MEF commander and also, you know, MAR-4 pack and potentially MAR-SENT. Uh, where they're flowing, those have got to be decisions in, in conjunction, you know, with the Navy. Because uh, I think, you know, we've all seen uh, there have been certainly a, a number of uh, carriers and also uh, individual ships. I mean, they, they showed a picture of that one uh, Navy uh, destroyer coming back into, uh, you know, Norfolk. Uh, that thing had been out forever. So and they were extended because of uh, COVID. They didn't make any port calls. You know, they were left at uh, sea. So, you know, again, if there were challenges for the 15th Mew uh, doing their train up, you know, people made decisions that at a high level that, uh, you know, Jeff's talked about to combine, combine at, you know, sea periods and to try and maintain, you know, the deployment schedule. Those were, you know, those were three star, four star, you know, decisions that were made to uh, maintain that you know, deployment, uh, you know, schedule. Yep. And what drove the, that was the Navy's requirement after the Roosevelt that you be in quarantine for three weeks, I think. Three That's weeks. Right. And they weren't going to, they weren't going to send them home on leave, bring them back and then have them quarantine it for another three weeks, which got their seat that, you know, their final, uh, at sea periods, uh, put together. Um, Final thoughts on the theme of, of this show, and that is, is the Marine Corps pointed in the right direction, solving the right problems? Mike, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, in regards to the uh, AAV incident, I thought, you know, the testimony, you know, they did enough and they said enough things to, uh, you know, basically to placate Congress. I mean, the bigger issues are the ones that you've been uh, talking about for, you know, weeks now. And that's the operational uh, excellence and discipline that goes along to, uh, you know, make that happen. So while, you know, we may have, uh, the Marine Corps may have placated uh, in, you know, Congress in the short term, you know, the longer term issue is still out there and uh, needs to be addressed. Jeff Kenny. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that I, I don't see, I'm kind of pessimistic, really, you know, but uh, I feel that the the DOD in general is 
focused on the wrong things. And, uh, and so consequently, there's no push from above to, for people to fix this. And, and the stuff we saw in the investigations, you know, the testimony in Congress was, you know, was was a show for the people on who are watching the TV, watching C-SPAN. I really think that, uh, you know, because of the deaths, they had to pay attention to this thing. But the truth is, the focus of DOD in general and of the Marine Corps in particular, and this is tragic, is not on operational excellence. It's on the distractions being passed down from above. And that's a shame, but I believe that. Timmy? What, what we've been seeing um, and over the last course of the last year is nothing but friction. Friction that is being generated by the senior leadership of the Marine Corps in an effort to change and, and remodel how we fight, which was based on a requirement we don't know anything about. We have no idea of why these changes are being made. We have to take the commandant and his word that he's seen something. So, no. We, we, it's not heading in the right direction. We've, we've seen nothing but friction from on, from, from on high. Then you throw in the COVID stuff. Then you throw in the new administration and their peculiar focus on white folks. It's, it's, it's a very discouraging situation. And it is in exactly these kind of times you expect the Marine Corps to be, to be focusing on being Marines and, and, and nothing else. And I would be, I'd be proud to say I've seen that, but I, I haven't seen that. I've seen a lot of, a lot of ass covering, and and, I, and 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 a lot of finger pointing, and it's disturbing. Well, yeah, I, I this is troubling. Um, I, I don't think we're on the right track. When the assistant commandant goes up and says, you know, we've got a culture issue and how we report and things on safety, you know, the, the flip side of that coin is maybe we have a lying issue in terms of how we report. Uh, and then I don't expect any help from Congress. I mean, the chairman made a soliloquy at the end and talked about how concerned this particular subcommittee is about readiness of all the services in the Marine Corps. And I got to tell you, all he needs to do is tell DOD to shit the DERS report. And that'll tell him everything he needs to know about readiness. And if the readiness report says we're in the tank, then he needs to look at his committee and figure out all the funding that they spent, you know, where did it get spent? And if the readiness report says that we're great, he needs to get all the service chiefs up on the hill and tell them that they need to seek employment elsewhere because obviously we're not ready. So... Uh, I'm pessimistic, and I got nothing out of that committee hearing that tells me that anyone involved in that, um, you know, the, the one person, unfortunately, her presentation is horrible, is Jackie Spire. You know, she wanted name the names. She wanted to cut some heads off in there. And when you get a, a pretty hard left uh, liberal is the one that's pushing accountability, that ought to tell you you're in trouble. Yeah, you know, I, I, I go back to um, what I wanted to hear at some point was somebody talk about operational excellence. And I didn't hear that. And and somehow or other, um, we didn't kind of hearken back to, you know, outstanding Marines that, that did tough training and, 
and 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 we're absolutely safe. We didn't hearken back to that. We said we we're going to create this new environment so that people would feel comfortable. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, you know, an organization um, that isn't interested in excellence that doesn't see in its history, you know, the fact that it has done these things, and doesn't say that you know we're going to shine this thing up and we're going to get this shit right, and and we're going to become the Marine Corps that that we've always been throughout history, and that is ready to fight tonight. We're ready to fight tonight because, you know. We do train hard, and we do train hard, and we do and we do it safely, and that is inherent in your oath of office as a Marine officer. So I was, I was disappointed I didn't hear that. So, uh, Mike, first of all, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Um, um, I before I met Mike, I had only heard about him, and uh, and everything I heard about Mike Marletto was uh, was just what a what a great officer he was, and what a great guy he was, and so. Uh, uh, thank you for joining the uh, Mensa sisters and myself tonight, um, and uh, and doing this, Mike. I hope you'll come back and do it. And and uh, Mike, there's a few things that he needs to get out of the way. One is the artillery performance at Gettysburg. Yes, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely. So I don't know. If we're, I don't know if we're going to do that next week, but Mike's got a whole show that we're going to do, and he's going to enlighten some people on the realities of artillery at Gettysburg. Uh, and then what's the other one? There's one other one. No, that was it. Uh, I thought there was another one that you had stick it in your craw. No, what I have, what I had uh, is a recommendation, uh, a reading recommendation. Oh shit! And, uh, I, and I've heard the, uh, you know, you all and the Mensa brothers and everyone uh, sing the praises of Jim Hornfisher, and I share those uh, that praise. Uh, he he does uh, writes great stuff. Um, maybe about a year ago, I I was listening to a presentation that uh, Jim Hornfisher was giving at uh, the World War II Museum in uh, New Orleans, and they were talking this subject. It was a panel on on Guadalcanal and the significance of Guadalcanal seventy five years later. And what struck me is as Hornfisher was speaking. He anytime he got into something technical about the naval battles around Guadalcanal, he was deferring to a gentleman sitting in the audience who later gave a presentation. Uh, and his name was Trent Hone. And said, so, well, you know, as I heard Warren Fisher deferring to him, I said, well, I've got to find out who this guy Trent Hone is. So uh, I looked him up and found out that he had written a book called Learning War, the Evolution of uh, Fighting Doctrine in the U.S. Navy, 1898 to 1945. And I would tell you that's got to be must-reading for uh, everyone. Uh, and I do did note that it's now on the Commandant's uh, reading list. Uh, because, you know, Trent Hone goes and talks about all the pain that the Navy went through, in particular in the early days of 1942, in 1943, learning how to integrate all this new technology, all these new systems, and it was uh, not pain-free. Uh, all of 1942 and 1943, you know, all through the Solomons are littered with, you know, the souls and the wreckage of uh, U.S. Uh, you know Navy ships. So when we start talking about okay, we're now going to bring all this new high-speed uh, gear in, we're going to 
bring in drones. We're going to bring in long range precision fires. We're all going to make this stuff, you know, magically work. I would say, uh, take a look at what Trent uh, Hone had to say about that and the history of that. And uh, it'll be uh, not only enlightening, but it'll probably scare you even more. <laughs> wow. There you go. There's not a bad shot for the first reading list recommendation from Mike Marletto. Jeff, what are you reading these days? Well, coincidentally, I'm reading by Hornfisher, I'm reading Ghost Ship about the USS Houston, which I'm sure Mike Marletto has read. And uh, it's a great book. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. Well, actually, probably not that far because they haven't been sunk yet and become uh, POWs working in the uh, what later became known as the uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai Railroad there. But um, so it's a great book. And Horn Fisher, like Toll, you know, the, the, the way he comes at the subject is, uh, you know, it's very interesting, you know, in regards to personalities, the logistics stuff, other things that enter in that we don't usually think about, and you know, we're thinking about naval history. So that's good. But I also, I'll tell you, I went to Vegas this weekend to my new house. And when I was there, my buddy Mike Maiman, who I've spoken to some of you about, he sent me the book, well, actually before I left here, he sent me the book Killing the Mob by Bill O'Reilly and this other dude named Dugard. So I re- that's the type of book you can read like on a plane flight cross country or like in a weekend so i read it this weekend in vegas and uh it was pretty good except then i heard an interview of bill o'reilly and some and and uh glenn beck this morning and i realized that bill o'reilly don't know shit about that book he wrote the other guy <laughs> knows because he was saying yeah you know what happened with al capone FDR didn't like him, so he ordered the IRS to go after him, and that's how they got him in jail. I'm thinking everybody, and I mean, I know Will knows this, knows that Al Capone went to jail in 1931, and FDR didn't become president until 1933. So it's that type of lack of attention to detail when you're the author of a book that pisses me off. Another interesting tidbit from that, according to this book, and I kind of believe this because my dad told me this, Muhammad Ali's fights, his first two fights, he had two fights against Sonny Liston. Both of them were fixed. Like, Sonny Liston was drunk the first fight, and then he just fucking gave up the second fight. And he got big bucks for it. Uh, And uh, the reason why I say that's no surprise to me is when I was a kid, my dad used to take me to Middletown, Connecticut to this bar. I mean, I was like eight years old. And it was a boxing aficionado's bar. It was owned by a guy named Willie Pep was a famous lightweight fighter, right? right. And uh, there was this guy there named the Encyclopedia. And he's telling he's, – he, he knew everything about all fighters. Like He's telling stories about Packy McFarland. These guys you guys never heard of. You know, you got to be, you know, all these, um, you know, uh, Will, it, stuff about Willie Pep because it's his bar. On and on and on. But he said, kid, just look at the odds. That's how you know. He said to my dad, who he called Kid, who was like 40, you know, that's how you know. You look at how the odds go before the fight. If they fucking turn upside down, you know the fight's dirty. And so he was, I mean, in my opinion, he was right. Also, uh, in that book, which is not really that good about the mob, but it's interesting about modern history. It talks about JFK and RFK. And did hold, you guys hey, wait, that hold RFK on. Was- hey, this is like, what are you reading, okay? I mean, this is I'm not... I'm going to finish right now. I'm going to finish right now. 
Um, oh. When things really start getting good, you interrupt me. I know you're. Well, I mean, you're, you're, this is like the third transition. I'm like, what the fuck? It's <laughs> Did you know that when RFK got shot by Sirhan Sirhan, he shot him with an eight, one of those uh, 22 revolvers that has eight shots, and eight shots. That gun was emptied at RFK. Only one of them hit him. And but somewhere six other eight twenty two rounds went off in that little room too. There's fourteen shots that went off in that room. So where did the other guy come? I mean, how could there be two guys? You know, it's like a mystery. Anyway, ah, there you my go. my advice to you guys is read the the book, read all those killing books by Bill O'Reilly. But no, that it's the other guy who does the hard research. Bill O'Reilly don't know shit about most of that stuff. Timmy, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't know how you follow that, Timmy. But go ahead. What are you reading? Yeah, I, I know. That's, I was just going to bitch. How? What? What can I say? I am reading Unsettled. What climate science tells us, and what what it doesn't, and why it matters. And the reason I'm reading it is it's written by Stephen Conan, who was a undersecretary for uh, science at the U.S. Department of Energy under Obama. And this guy uh, is given a pretty decent treatment about uh, about global warming, uh, well, about climate change, uh, and, it's, and it's encouraging. I think it's, a, it's the dam's beginning to break because what the guy is talking about is, like, science, such as the fact is, is that, that you know, that, that he, he's, he's uncovering a lot of the disingenuous information we're fed and laying it out there for everybody to see that, 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 uh, that uh, what global... Climate change is another one of these things we have to deal with that is made of uh, it's 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 not based in reality. It's based off of a uh, off of a uh, another you know. You know I'm sorry. <laughs> I I know I'm I'm, sounding, I'm uh, getting a little bit lost here in this, but anyway, I'm reading the super book. It's great. Awesome. It's making me happy. There you go. That's a, that's important. Will yeah. follow, Will go ahead yeah. and follow that. <laughs> yeah, this week I read this book called Unsettled by Steve Coonan. <laughs> did you really? I did. I read it this week. It's it's a book that will annoy the hell out of you. Because yeah. basically, this is a left-wing physicist, political appointee in the Obama administration that the scales fall from his eyes when he starts looking at real data. Uh, so, I mean, it's really, a, it, it's a... It's a great book. Uh, I, I am not optimistic that it's going to change anything. Um, and it's funny, he wrote it this year. So he, 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 he capitalizes the words, the science. He talks about the science with, co- with climate change, and he does the same thing with COVID. You know, scientists as advocates as opposed to scientists who provide data. So really, mm-hmm. uh, really a great book about climate change um, and what everyone is doing and how we're hell bent to bankrupt ourselves. So after I read that, I picked up an auto, uh, not an auto, a biography of John Jay, um, whose name, if you know anything about the revolution, you've heard about, but you don't know a lot about. And I just started it yesterday. Um, But I can tell it's going to be a very good book. So yeah, that's what I did. Uh, I haven't read anything this week, but I want to put a plug in for the read board at All Marine Radio. All right. Um, <laughs> and let me tell you why. If you go there, you're going to find um, 
a video that says Pearl Harbor video, attack plan, target list, bomb damage assessment. Watch that. Will was out here going to the MEF Sergeant Major post and relief. And I said, hey, after dinner, we got to watch that. So we watch it. And we're sitting there shooting the shit. And then the next video just starts because we weren't paying attention. The next video was video one in a three-video series of um, salvage, salvage efforts at Pearl Harbor. And we started watching it. And we wound up watching all three parts of it. And I'm telling you, if you want to watch some something fascinating, the salvage efforts of the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor starting on December 7th, 1941, absolutely riveting watching. Absolutely. The way they patch ships, you know, welded the patches, pumped air, right? Got the ship to move a little bit, right? Washed all the mud off, took turrets off, went in and got ammunition out. Will, how many tons of food rotted on what ship was that? I think there was one ship that had 70, 70 tons of rotten food that they had to remove. Yeah, it's just, so it's, uh, it's amazing. There's also two other uh, articles that I that I put up there just in the last 24 hours. Uh, one is based on an article I saw, and then the other one's a footnote in the article. The first article is statistics don't support removing commanders from military justice, written by Dave Schleter and Lisa Schneck or Schenk, right? And that's the headline that caught my eye. And so if you go, th- if you're reading the article, one of the, one of the citations in the article is an article that they wrote for the Gonzaga law review, right? So it's, it's, it's not written for popular consumption. It's, you know, a bazillion footnotes and all of that, right? And that's entitled national military and college reports on prosecutions of sexual assault and victims' rights, colon, is the military actually safer than civilian society? So yes. I would recommend both those to you read both those things in an effort to educate yourself as the military grapples with what do we do with the whole sexual assault thing. And once you read those, it's an absolute head-scratcher that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff would not take this data, which the data comes out was commissioned. I believe the study was commissioned by the DOD. Does not put that data in front of his new SecDef and say, "Hey, look, by by any by this statistical analysis, we're doing the best job in the country of anybody, right? You are eight times more likely." to be prosecuted in the military of sexual assault than you are in the state of New York, five times more likely than in the state of Texas, right? That's the job, and again, to be prosecuted. Now, again, uh, the conviction numbers are what they are, and that's a different issue. It's an evidentiary issue. But if you want to look at an organization that is out in front, the way it treats victims and all the stuff, very, very interesting articles. So I would refer you to the Almarine Radio Read Board. It's a fine web page. And check that out. The salvage stuff is unbelievable. And yeah. Will and Will was sitting there talking and he's doing a little chest thumping about being a Naval Academy guy. And he said, You know, Mac, um 
all these guys who did this shit. One day you were the captain of, you know, you know, the California o- of the California. And the next day you were leading the salvage effort, you know, with your degree in engineering from the Naval Academy. Here's another thing I didn't know that the Utah is still sitting, you know, forward of the Arizona uh, on Battleship Pro. I didn't know that. I was like, actually, the Utah is on the other side of Fort Island. If you've got to be able to, if you have a military ID when you go on to uh, Fort Island, the Utah is on the other side, opposite side of the island from Battleship Row. And the Utah, as they talk about in uh, pretty well in that uh, video, those were the anchorages for the carriers. And so the Utah and Raleigh, uh, you know, in the excitement of the Japanese attack, took some torpedoes. The Utah in particular was a, a um, training a target ship. And uh, so it had a bunch of timber and stuff on the deck, which could have made, given uh, the look of uh, aircraft carrying, obviously, because it was the next battleship, it was a fairly big ship. But yeah. it's on the opposite side of Fort Island from Arizona. You know, I'm looking at the map, and it's on the exact opposite side. There's a little platform that you can go up. I didn't even... I didn't know that. I didn't know that Utah was there too, and there was a memorial out there as well. So, um, yeah, but I, fascinating stuff. Anyway, guys, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate the discussion again, and uh, and Mike, thank you for joining us. Awesome. That'll do it on a Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for paying attention. Uh, if you have comments, don't be afraid to send them. Uh, live dot. Radio at gmail.com. So um, it's been very interesting the number of people that have uh, uh, reached out to comment. And uh, so um, would love to hear what you have to say. Uh, pretty serious stuff. And I go back to operational excellence. Operational excellence, you get there. Through being disciplined, by having hard training, and the handmaiden of hard training is relentlessly devoted to the safety of the people that you lead. Because you have a moral obligation to send them home to their families at Christmas. And that's a heavy burden. And you go to work with that every day. Right? Mindful of your role in the nation's defense, that you... You know, you're responsible for training a piece of it, wanting to do that well. And so operational excellence is what this is about. And the American military's got a problem. You've seen it in the Navy. You're seeing it in the Marine Corps. It's a discipline problem. Operational discipline. It just manifests itself in different ways. So with that said, thanks for listening. Um, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio here on the All Warrior Radio Network. Have a great day. If I can help you help somebody, let me know. All the contact information that, you, uh, that you'll find on All Marine Radio uh, comes to me. So let it rip. Have a great day. I'm out.